Welcome to the Willow Valley Podcasting Channel, where exciting podcasts are created by Willow Valley residents, for Willow Valley residents, and about Willow Valley residents. Good morning, everybody. I'm Ray Lowe, and I'm going to be your host for today on the Willow Valley Network. Uh, today, we're going to do a little, something a little bit different. Um, in addition to hosting our shows on Willow Valley, uh, I also host a weekly podcast on another channel, and we call it Changing the Rules. And a while ago, I interviewed a young man on Changing the Rules, and I think the interview will really be interesting to Willow Valley residents. So uh, Patrick Reynolds is a storyteller who tells stories through cartoons, and he's a history uh, buff, and he's come up with some incredibly uh, interesting things. And I met Patrick in the Willow Valley Swim Pool over at the Cultural Center a while ago. I think he's uh, not a resident here, but he's thinking I'm coming in. So let's take a little time and let's listen to his story, and uh, then we'll talk about it after it's done. Welcome to Changing the Rules, a weekly podcast about people who are living their best lives and advice on how you can achieve that too. Join us with your lively host, Ray Lowe, better known as the luckiest guy in the world. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Changing the Rules. And, and we have an incredible guest with us today, but before we let him on the air, I want to give you a little background. You know, we try every week to interview one of the luckiest people in the world, and the luckiest people in the world are those people who uh, don't let everybody else control their lives. They figure out what they want and they somehow figure a way to go do it. And you're going to see how our guest meets those specs today. And, and, and the other thing I wanted to comment on is the name of our show is Changing the Rules. And the reason for that is all through our lives, we're given rules by everybody. Okay, when you when you start, your parents give you a set of rules and then the schools give you a set of rules and the church gives you a set of rules and your boss gives you a set of rules. Before you know it, you got so many rules. And what rules do is two things. They tell you you have to do this or you can't do this. So the people who are independent and who become the luckiest people in the world have found a great way of changing the rules so that they get the freedom to be themselves. And uh, today we have with us a young man, uh, Patrick Reynolds, who is, I, I, I think the best way to describe him is a historical cartoonist. So Patrick, say hello, and you can tell me that I was wrong in how I described you. Oh, hello, Ray. Um, that's kind of accurate. Uh, I'm a cartoonist that does historical subjects of uh, places or people that you've never heard of. Or uh, if you're familiar with them, something about them that's never known. So you found the interesting way of doing things. So you weren't always free to be you, though, were you? Correct. Right. right. So let's go back a little bit. When you, uh, early in your life, you realized you had this flair for cartooning. Is that correct? Right. When I was a kid. And you developed it. And, and uh, when you had a chance to go to college or trade school or whatever it is, uh, you went to learn how to be a better cartoonist first. Uh, well, I, I wanted to be an artist. And... Uh, but, my hobby was artwork. Okay. It would be great if I could make a living out of my hobby. So uh, I made that decision to be an artist. And I, I, 
I had a mentor, if you will, in my hometown who was a very accomplished artist, and I asked, what's the best art school in our country I can go to without missing a beat? He says, Pratt Institute, little known to me that is in the middle of Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Bed-Stuy neighborhood. Okay, but you got through that. You lived yeah. through the experience. Oh, yeah. Okay, so, so early in your life, okay, when you came out of Pratt, what did you do? I became an art director for an advertising agency in Scranton. Uh, it was sort of like get, getting my master's degree, if you will. There's the old uh, thing, we can't hire you unless you have experience. Well, how can I get experience? So this was this was it. So I stayed there a year, and then I became an, an art director at a, an ad agency in Harrisburg. And I worked there for a year, and then finally the draft board caught up with me. And he says, you're not getting any more deferments. You have two months to make a decision. Otherwise, we'll draft you. So uh, I so, went in the Army. Okay. And, and interesting, you were in intelligence in the Army. Correct. Right? Right, right. And it tells you something about cartoonists, doesn't it? And, and uh, you did some really interesting things. You did some aerial surveillance. And, uh, you know, make a long story short, I understand you wound up with a Bronze Star. I understand you left the Army Reserves as a retired lieutenant colonel. Right. Right? right. So uh, this was a big part of your life. And uh, I know you were telling me some stories when we were kind of prepping for this about uh, how you actually wound up doing some drawing while you were doing this stuff and, and uh, putting Mickey Mouses on the floor flags just to keep yourself entertained and stuff like that. But rather than spending time there, I want to go on because I think the rest of your career was just absolutely phenomenal and I want to spend the time there. So so you you left the army. Right. And what did you do? I got a job uh, at a, as an artist up in Schenectady for General, General Electric. I always want to say General Electric, but General Electric. And uh, that got me back on my feet in the art business. And from there, I became uh, advertising manager of uh, the host farm here in Lancaster. That's how I ended up in Lancaster. Okay. Now, I understand the host farm is significant because you learned two things there that took, took over your career, right? Well, really one thing from the, my boss, I used to have to make up the uh, rate brochures to tell what it would cost to stay there for at a particular holiday. And I would, uh, I would have to match up the, what's going to cost with the type of room. And uh, then I would get it uh, printed out and bring it to my boss, the manager. And he'd look at it and he'd say, I want question, is it idiot proof? I, idiot proof, what are you talking about? He says, I want it so that any idiot can look at this and not have any questions. They'll understand everything you're trying to tell them. And that became one of the keys to my writing style. Okay. And, and there was something else that came out of there a while ago. I, I'm, I'm not going to match it up correctly, but it had to do with something you didn't know. Oh, uh, I, I worked for the... Uh, after I worked for Host Farm, I got a job as the uh, uh, public relations uh, uh, information specialist for the State Tourism Bureau, where we promoted tourism around the country. And uh, I would look at uh, what other states are doing, and I figured I'm going to do what they're not doing. And uh, 1973, 74, it was Halloween time, and I came up with the concept of... of um, 
a, a tour of haunted places in the state, of place, haunted places you can visit. And the story got picked up by the New York Daily News, front page of their travel section. And a couple of months later, I met the, our, the editor of the travel section. I says, what did I do right? And he says, you told me something I didn't know. So when I came up with my cartoons, I decided to do it, a, a, a one on Pennsylvania. And uh, it would consist of stories from history that people never heard of or even thought about. So here we are. We're doing something we didn't know. And the cartoons gave you a medium to make them idiot-proof. Correct. Right? Correct. Well, welcome to your own world, Patrick. <laughs> so, so, so this led you on a career. So, so go back, and uh, uh, there was a point in time when you took off on your own because I think you got fed up with uh, the bureaucracy, and you, you had this creativity that you wanted to run. But I think you told me a story of, that dealt with the bicentennial and uh, taking off to Boston and and seeing something about uh, uh, Yankee something or other in the newspaper. So amplifying that. I was a member of the Society of American Travel Writers, and we had our convention in 1975 in several cities, and one of the first one was Boston. And on Sunday morning, right after the... That previous Saturday night, I was in my hotel room, and I watched this new TV show that just came on, Saturday Night Live, 1975. Anyway, the next morning, I pick up the Boston Globe, and... Uh, they had a cartoon that was on their front page called Yankee Almanac. It was a whimsical treatment of Massachusetts Bay Colony history from back in the 1600s. And I said, that is the coolest idea I've ever seen. I can do something like that for Pennsylvania. And at the time, I was bucking for a promotion to be our, the director of my bureau. At the time, I had delusions of grandeur. And uh, so uh, I did three of them. Uh, and uh, one of them had to do with what, the July 3rd and three significant events in PA and places that you can visit, such as Gettysburg. Uh, another one was on uh, uh, the, the, uh, the mammoth uh, fossil found in Pennsylvania, which is on display at the State Museum. On and on. So I did these three, gave them to the higher up, and didn't hear from them. And then what they did was they hired a guy from Virginia for the job that I wanted. And I thought... I'm not long for this job. So uh, he, he came to me and said, uh, the, the powers that be were impressed by your comic strips. How long is it going to take you to do one of them things? And I, says, I'm not, I said to myself, I'm not going to give this to the state. I'm keeping this for me. So uh, I said, uh, four days a week. He goes, wow, uh, that's a lot to do. I says, look, you're the boss. I'm going to do what you direct me to do and what you want done. I says, but I'd like to do this on my own time. Therefore, I'd like you to get a letter of understanding from the powers that be that I can do this on my own time and sell it to the newspapers. And uh, next day he came back with a letter of understanding, and that's how it started. And for there, I marketed to all the newspapers I could can in the state. I ended up getting picked up by 20 newspapers, but none of them were in Philadelphia or Pittsburgh. Uh, one of these papers now became a Pittsburgh paper, but that was long, many, long years, many years later. So uh, uh, I did that for a couple of years, but still, I got, I, I had time. Uh, oh, after that st cartoon started, it took me two years to leave my state job. 
because I came out with books on it. And the books sold fantastically, which I printed myself, by the way. And uh, uh, so after two years, I figured I could, I could make this on my own. So, so now you emerge as one of the luckiest people in the world, right? Exactly. Because, right. because now you're doing your passion. Right. And there are two passions that I detect. One is cartooning, and the other is these historic events that you pick up and you can make come to life for people. Right, right, right. Like as if you're there. And you could do this and figure out how to get paid for it right. without right. putting up with the bureaucracy of the state of Pennsylvania and exactly. others somewhat. Exactly. Okay, great. All right, so now we know why you were dealing with the luckiest people in the world. So over the years... Uh, what are some of the best topics that you uncovered? You mentioned, the haunt, you mentioned the haunted houses, but what are some of the other ones that you found fascinating that you were able to turn into comics so that everybody could understand they were idiot-proof right, and would right. tell people something new, right? Right. Well, sometimes I try to tie them in with a current event. For example, January 6th last year, the uh, raid on the U.S. Capitol. Uh, I, I got an idea of a different type of mass gathering in Washington, one of the first ones, and that was the Bonus Army that took place in 1932. Uh, and uh, what, what the bonus was, was Congress passed a, an act in 1924 that gave a bonus to every soldier that served in World War I. And that bonus was going to be paid in 1946. So at the time, in the 1920s, people were making a living. They were living. It was a great time. And then the Depression hit. Now half these veterans, several million of them, are destitute. Their farms are being uh, repossessed by the banks. So uh, uh, Washington had to do something. We need that money now, not 1946. So... Uh, Wright Patman from Texas voted in favor of it, but no one went along with it. The House passed it, the Senate wouldn't. So they, a, a couple of guys, uh, one guy in particular in Oregon, decided to march on Washington. So he and how are they going to get that? They had no money. So what they did was they hitchhiked, or they hopped on freight trains, and they got as far as, and this made the news. So other veterans from the rest of the country said, we're going to do the same thing. So they started hitchhiking and train hopping, train, all converging on Washington, D.C. Eventually, 20,000 veterans showed up and w waited for the uh, uh, con pressured Congress to... They, and they, they're very organized, by the way, since these are military. And uh, the, the, where are they going to stay? Uh, the chief of police got them to stay in some of the abandoned buildings on Pennsylvania Avenue because PA Avenue was being rebuilt to what it looks like today. So and, where do you find this stuff? Uh, I read a lot. Okay. I read a whole lot. Uh, and by the way, I've been doing this long before we had Google and stuff like that. Okay. So give me another example. So that's something I didn't know. Okay. Right. right. And I think I understand it. So give me something else. Uh, well, well, I got I, I got to tell you the kicker on the bonus army. Okay. Uh, they they uh, Congress voted against it, and. It was dead. So half the veterans left D.C., the other half stayed there. 
and most a lot of them settled in, in camps in Anacostia, which is across the Anacostia River, uh, and and uh, uh, several many thousands were there. And he built their own shacks. Some of them lived out of their own jalopy cars. And uh, when uh, they refused to leave, President Hoover gave the word to his chief of staff, General Douglas MacArthur to get rid of them. And General MacArthur, along with his his uh, adjutant, uh, Major Dwight Eisenhower, uh, went into action. And they organized uh, two troops of uh, squadrons of cavalry and uh, a one, uh, half, uh, two battalions of infantry to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and just kick everybody out. The infantry carried tear gas, the um, cavalry carried sabers. Commanding one of the squadrons was Captain George Patton. So so they eradicated everybody, and they ended up burning all their, uh, setting fire to all the stuff at Anacostia. So it ended in in a disaster, and when this hit the news, Franklin Roosevelt in his home in Hyde Park was the Democratic candidate for president that year. He just sat there and told his aide, we don't have to campaign anymore. Wow. Just lost it. Wow. (laughs) So this is this is the core kind of story that you tried to tell in your publications. Is that right? Right. Right. Okay. so. Unfortunately, we're getting near the end of our time, and I want to hit something because you're kind of uh, at the end of your publication experience. You told me you're going to retire. I don't believe that, but we'll assume that you're correct for the moment. Uh, what are you going to do in writing about your life and your history? And you, I think you said there were four events. Uh, you're going to have to give us a short version here, but go ahead. I, uh, my editors ran, asked me the question, are you going to do a special goodbye? And I says, uh, look, I not only write history, but I've lived through four, I consider four significant events in American history. The first one, I was a senior at Pratt. I was given a freelance job to help this woman uh, in her business. Her name was Maylie Dufty, a, a, a renowned civil rights leader who owned a booking company for burlesque acts in black burlesque theaters across the country. And she needed someone to work on her book, which is a a page-by-page bio of each person, and I had to do the lettering on it. So I can free her up so she can make phone calls all over the country to bus companies. And these bus companies were going to meet at churches, black churches throughout the country, and carry people to Washington, D.C. for the 1963 March on Washington. At at one point, I asked her the dumbest question in my life. I said, do you think you're going to get many people to show up? She says, you'll see. (laughs) And that summer, thousands, I think over a million people showed up to listen to Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. Then during the, when I was in the Army, active duty, I participated in the Tet Offensive of 1968. Uh, As a reservist uh, in in the Army, I was activated to, uh, my company was activated that I commanded to take part uh, in the the rescue mission uh, from the Agnes Flood uh, that inundated Pennsylvania. And the last one was after the TMI accident, uh, I I get a phone call from the, uh, the public relations director of TMI, 
That's Three Mile Island, right? Three Mile Island, yeah. uh, the nuclear plant. Yep. And the uh, what happened was the nu- the core of the one reactor virtually melted. And uh, he called me and he says, "Are you?" uncomfortable with uh, coming on to GMI, I said, uh, are you going to pay me? He says, yes. <laughs> I said, I'll, I'll be there. So, so uh, the job I had was to uh, interpret uh, engineer schematics, which I had experienced before, and making them into uh, illustrations of these tools that they're going to use to break apart the core, and then pick up the pieces. I did maybe a dozen of these things, and uh, they made a video out of it, and uh, they never used the video because they decided not to go into the core at all. So there's the force, TMI accident. Okay, so amazing, okay? And, uh, you know, all I can say is welcome to the world of the luckiest people in the world. You're there, okay? Uh, we're going to have to do an encore to this because I, I just see the list of stories here. You can, you can go on and on and on forever, probably. Right. <laughs> and and uh, I, I think the lesson that we hope people learn is, you know, when you get frustrated in your career, you know, think, find, find that key. Find uh, how you can use your passion and go off and become one of the luckiest people in the world and patrick thanks so much for being here and uh luke sign us off and uh we'll see everybody next week thank you for listening to changing the rules join us next week for more conversation our special guest and to hear more from the luckiest guy in the world it's gonna have to be a different man Well, I hope you enjoyed Patrick's story. Uh, you know, if you if you found Patrick's stories interesting, you can uh, try and find other Changing the Rules uh, podcasts. Uh, we're on Apple iTunes and all the major networks. And we're going to, from time to time, bring other people in that we've interviewed on this other network that we think Willow Valley people will be intrigued by. Uh, many of them live here. And so stay tuned for more. And, you know, thanks for joining us for our weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. And be sure to listen again next week and every week when we'll have another exciting guest.